Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 4th of March. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you'll hear us talk about stacking a dishwasher and maybe it is more versatile than you realise. More funny than you've made out of it. <laughs> it's actually yes, lower your expectations. Stacking a dishwasher, <laughs> like Christ, what are we doing with our lives? Please stick with the podcast. <laughs> Um, and potato milk. Do you know what it is? Because Michael Harden does. And he came into the studio in real life. It was very energising. Told us all about the future of food trends in Melbourne. We had Robin and Nia tell us about the last ever match at the Melbourne Rat Pit back in 1867. Uh, why am I scared to travel on small planes? And also I chat about an incident whilst uh, skydiving, a little bit embarrassing, uh, but no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ben Altham updates us on all things politics. For feature creatures, Fiona Scott Norman uh, told us about chickens and their lives and we delved into the delicate language of school reports. Triple R. Growing up, we never used to have a dishwasher. I guess most people didn't have dishwashers when they were growing up. Nowadays, most people do have them. Uh, Mum and Dad used to joke, or Dad used to joke, that us kids were the dishwasher, mm. that we would do everything. Um, so I guess when once we got older, Mum and Dad bought a, a new house and everything, but a dis- dishwasher wasn't something that Mum thought she needed. She's like, no, I've never had one before, don't need it. Um, but eventually they, they got one uh, because we'd have Christmas, we'd have lots of family over yeah. and then at the end, you know, we'd, we'd wash the dishes and everything and so we said it's much easier. I remember on Christmas one year, uh, mum started to hand wash the dishes. I said, what, what are you doing? You've got the dishwasher. And she's like, oh, it's just it's too much trouble. She didn't know how to work it or anything like that. I said, just stack it or we can stack it. I, I can show you. Um, and she went to put a, a plate and it had so much food on it. I said, well, you have to rinse it first. She said, well, I might as well wash it. Mm. I said, okay, all right. She was just so against having a dishwasher. She, she didn't want it at all. Um, but I think Dad used it a couple of times. I remember going home once uh, and opening – Mum was washing dishes again. I go, what are you doing? You've got to use the dishwasher. And I opened it and some things had been put in there hmm. that had not been washed and it was a horrible. I said, I go, Ma, what, <laughs> you've got this – you haven't pressed start. And oh. she said, that's why I hate it. See, I've been looking for this fry pan for a very long time oh. and here it is. So she just put them in, closed the door and I'm walking Chucked away. Chucked it in. Well, oh. I think <laughs> – well, I'm going to throw my dad under the bus, but that would probably be my dad. Um, uh-huh. But when I, I think people, well, I do, I have, a, I guess, particular ways in which you stack a dishwasher. Like pots and pans, I don't put in a dishwasher. No. I, I generally will wash them by hand. Um, I had a housemate once that would stack, and, and I think you need a bit of order. So, I mean, the better you stack it, the more efficient it can be, and you can fit more dishes in there. You can't just have a like a plate and a bowl and then a plate and a bowl. Like you need to put mm. all the plates together, all the bowls, all the, mm. all of that. Um, yeah, I had a housemate and she would just put anything everywhere. It was very frustrating. The most frustrating thing was knives. She put knives with the sharp bit facing up. Oh, but yeah, bad. But apparently that's what you should do. I don't <gasps> do it because it's sharp. Ouch. Yeah. But apparently it cleans them better. I don't know. Stabs you better too. Mm. Like when you're going to unstack the dishwasher, when there's all of them there. Mm. And I did it multiple times. And, of course, I didn't mention it at all to my housemate because I don't do that, you know, confrontation stuff. I asked Abby, but um, Mm. I'd just rather bring it up on radio. Um, But, yeah, knives was a a big thing. I don't do um, pots or pans or anything like that. (laughs) What are your thoughts on sex toys? In a A dishwasher? 
They all it's this so took many a sex turn toys. I was not it did, to but they honest. say dishwasher friendly. I haven't, but <laughs> so many of them say dishwasher friendly. Yes. Very friendly. Very. I mean, certainly not in the share house or uh, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, thoughts not not what you thought it was going. No, I mean it's not something I've ever ever thought about. I mean, aren't there? Um, isn't there like an electrical hazard potentially? I guess you take batteries out or something. I don't know. No, I, yeah, if you're in a share house and that happens, I mean, you yeah, you definitely wouldn't do it in a share house. And it is something like that I've seen and, and they like spruik it like it's dishwasher friendly it's like I, I don't think that that's not my issue well, people, I don't need people that. cook salmon in a dishwasher oh you can cook stuff in a dishwasher yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so I will never you wrap it in whatever foil aluminium foil or whatever and it gets hot and steams the salmon yeah and if you put it in something that can seal apparently you can cook it in there so what if you did both I yeah. cooked your dinner washed yeah your sex toy in the, and then <laughs> Like then you got so much time to, to do other stuff. Yeah, you, you don't wow. have to worry about cooking. Bit or... of fish, bit of fun. What a great <laughs> Wednesday night! <laughs> I had no idea you could cook in a dishwasher. I mm. mean, well, yeah. there you go. I, dishwasher I... friendly. I can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I, that I guess a lot of things are labelled that you know, like it would say. I think an iron would say, "Do not iron clothes while wearing." <laughs> <laughs> so, which is obvious. Which is obvious, but evidently someone went, well, you know, they sued the company because there was no warning. And, uh, yeah, obviously there must be some toys out there that backfire when you chuck it in with the pots and pans. (laughs) (laughs) Warping or melting? Oh, yeah, warping. Oh, I guess with the heat and stuff in there as well. All right, well, I guess... <laughs> Sorry, no. I really... No, I mean, it's like, it, you know, I got grief for bringing up COVID dick before. <laughs> I know! I will just wait for the next <laughs> to come through for this one, I think. Melbourne's own Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Joining us for a long overdue in-person food interlude, uh, it's Breakfast's lovable culinary curmudgeon, Michael Harden. Good day, Michael. <laughs> Hello. Happy to be in here with you all. It is. Mm. We're very, very happy to see you. Now, food trends. Yeah. There are... There are trends? There are actual trends. Things are happening. People okay. are eating. It's sort of like it's amazing. So I just sort of thought I'd better um, inform everybody so what they should and shouldn't be eating. Yeah. Let me um, guess. Buffets are out. Oh, <laughs> damn. I know. I know. It's sort of like it is a tragedy. It's one of my favourite ways to eat with people have sneezed all over the eggs before you've eaten them. But, uh, you know, we have to. We all have to sacrifice something along the way, don't yeah. we? So, um, yeah, just uh, there's there's quite a lot that I kind of could be talking about. But I thought a couple of uh, there's sort of ing- some ingredients that I think that we can all be looking out for. It's sort of one of the things that seems to be coming up that I think that will probably be more um, on the radar is potato milk. Okay. So there's, yeah, yeah, some delicious sounding, Vodka, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, because the, there's so many different milk, nut milks and, you know, and pea shoot milk and all of those sort of things. Potato milk is this new thing and it's been, there's a there's a brand in Sweden called Doug that's just found, seems to have found the, the magic bullet with potato milk because they're a very, um, it's a very environmentally friendly crop mm. and uh, way more than, uses way less water than, say, almonds or oats or anything like that. And it's actually really easy to make. You can actually make it 
at home, though it does kind of, you know, you, you, you'll probably go through 75 different batches before you get it right because it can be too watery or too bland or whatever. But it's like, it, and it's, they can add stuff to it, like because potatoes have very little additives to it. So they can, they, they boil it up with some water and stuff and then add things like um, the, the one in Sweden has got rapeseed oil in it. So, um, and the, the different, um, uh, levels of oil in there um, mean that it's very good for coffee and stuff. So it froths really well. So it's really good. Like, and it's got a really good. They add a little bit of vanilla and a little bit of sugar, and it's kind of a taste. It's one of the best um, milk substitutes. Have you tried? Have you tried it? Yeah, yeah. I have not this particular one, but I've had it where somebody's made it. And you, you can verify that it tastes. It's pretty good. It's actually wow. it's it's texturally. One of the better milks, I think, in terms of like if you're a dairy milk fan, yeah. I think texturally it's one of the closest. This one that I had, it's sort of like because it does have that creaminess Amazing. to it. So, so the cafe owners, what are they? How do they respond to this? Is it like, oh god, another one? Probably. It's sort of like we'll have to buy yet another fridge. For, yeah. You know, it's sort of like it's. It, this is the thing. It's like how many different milks do you offer? Because there are some. You know, there's almond and oak and you know whatever coconut and all of those different things. So mm. it's like I think. But probably it will come down to people choosing to buy it and also cost. But this is the thing with potato milk that it's going to be able to it, – it'll cost less and it's way better for the environment as well, which is going to be – I think that's that's why I think that it's going to be something that we're going to start seeing quite rapidly. What took so long, yeah. I wonder? Um, it's been – it was hard to get the right um, – um, like, you know, the, the levels right on it. So it was, it was a, a, a scientist – in uh, in Lund University in Sweden, that kind of came up with the right combination. She sort of also added there was some sort of emulsifier and and vitamin D or something that she put into it as well. So it took a while. Like pe- people have been doing it for a while, but I think it's been really hit and miss mm. in terms of um, in terms of what. So it's sort of like I'll have a potato milk cappuccino, double <laughs> double chocolate. <thanks. laughs> oh my gosh! Do you think almond milk will? Will die out because I think it's it so should. bad for the environment. I think it should. Yeah. You know, it's kind of it is tasty and whatever, but it's just like we really need to have a look. Mm. You know, long hard look at ourselves. It's sort of like really is that is that almond milk latte really worth mm. you know sort of all that water and you know often really underpaid workers mm. um, in order for you to sort of not drink dairy. So yeah. you know, it's a, it's a good alternative. Potatoes yeah. are a good alternative. Almond so. milk drinkers start hoarding now. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> or really take a good long time and look yourself in the mirror. Sure. <laughs> what else is out there? Um, another one that yuzu is another ingredient that mm. seems to be coming up. It's sort of like it's a um, sort of used a lot in Japanese cooking. Um, it's, a, it's a citrus fruit. Um, it's sort of got a really interesting sort of lime, lemon and grapefruit quality to it. And it seems to be coming there's sort of more of it being grown i think it's starting to be grown in australia and it just sort of seems to be popping up i seem to see it in things like gelati and kind of you know it's it's in soups it's in cocktails you using negroni at a restaurant in melbourne does it use a negroni i think yeah 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 you i think have that. yeah oh, well i think i've covered every negroni but i can't, <laughs> I can't quite remember the yuzu one but that that doesn't say i haven't drunk it so <laughs> So yeah, there's so there's those things. The other thing, like talking of of booze, um, you know, there's a there's a big push towards um, a lot of non-alcoholic 
um, beverages at the moment. Like there's a bar in, in Brunswick called Brunswick Aces, which is Australia's first no-alcohol bar. Um, they're doing sort of cocktails and, and all different sorts of drinks, you know, low no-alcohol beer, you know, that sort of stuff. But it's funny that at the same time that that's happening is that there's this whole other push where there's all these alcoholic sodas and seltzers coming in. So they're mm. like hard sodas, hard seltzers, like ginger beer with booze in it and sodas with booze and stuff like that. And people doing some really good work with those. They're quite refreshing and kind of less sugary and that sort of stuff. So it's kind of these two opposing forces where it's sort of like there's the no booze people and then it's like, you know, let's put more booze in things. Yeah. So, you know, it's like... um, just on flavouring drinks with Yuzu, is it, where, are they common? Where do we get them? Is there much juice in them? There's sort of like, you know, a, a reasonable amount of juice in them. Then sort of at the moment it's not like, you know, you can't, go out and buy, you know, a litre of yuzu juice, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. You can get their specialty stores, like Japanese stores in particular, you'll get it there a lot of the time because it's used in fairly small amounts in, in soups and things like that. But I think as the production of yuzu starts to ramp up, I think we'll be seeing more of that. And, like, it'll be about fresh yuzu as yeah. well. So. And how, just on trends, how cynical are we about the tr- Like, are there people scouring looking for trends or do they rise up organically? I think that there's or there's definitely a, 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 a whole market in people that are predicting what's happening in food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with everything there, I think a lot of those are driven by the food industry and manufacturing as well, sort of trying to make the stuff that they're doing. But at the same time, they are trying to spot what's happening because, you know, you look at things like with um, Meat Free, for example, you know, which was, you know, five years ago was niche, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of, you know, people would laugh at it. And now it's kind of really quite a mainstream and vegan has kind of really taken up quite a lot of real estate on menus and things like that. It's just kind of one of those things that's just naturally come along. Yeah, right. So, you know, and people and but, you know, it's interesting now that there's sort of arguments that, that, that's coming up with with the rise of vegans is like one of the, the arguments happening at the moment is the meat industry is starting to talk about not wanting um, non-meat um, products to be called meat. Mm-mm. Can't call it chicken, can't call it beef, can't call it pork. Because it's not like so champagne. It's this, yeah, exactly. It's a it's a very much that kind of you know. It's like calling a cheese parmesan when you know it's not from that you know it's mm. not from Italy and those sort of things. So it's um it's it's an it, that'll be an interesting sort of thing that's coming up in the food industry where and then you know the non meat burger people and and meat substitutes and everything will have to talk about different things and then you kind of think well what about a lab grown chick what about lab grown chicken meat which has actually got chicken genetics mm-hmm. but it's not an actual chicken like do you call that meat or do you not call it not meat yeah so you know and you when because they're like a hundred thousand dollar meatballs aren't they or have they has the price gone the down? the price is starting to come down there's a there's a restaurant in singapore that's now doing lab-grown meat and you know it's expensive still but the price is coming down and you know as with everything scale um, you know, the price will come down with yeah. that sort of stuff. Uh, so. Are there any other trends that you're noticing? Um, in terms of restaurants, I think there's some really interesting things going on, which obviously are probably COVID-related and the sort of like the, the, the difficulty that the industry has been through. And I've sort of some in- really interesting sort of stuff that's happening with restaurants, which I think um, there's a sort of um, small is beautiful kind of thing happening with some restaurants. So people are doing tiny restaurants. Like I went to a restaurant... Uh, well, it was—it's like a wine bar in West Brunswick called Shabu Shabar. It's um, it's uh, the same people who've got Wide Open Road in Brunswick, and I've got um, Heart Attack and Vine in Carlton, and uh, it's basically like it's a wine bar, and they've, they 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 don't really have a kitchen, but they do really good food. The kid, all of the food is assembled behind the bar, 
mm. and they've got and basically they've got two people on there. So it's this sort of Japanese model, mm. like you see in Tokyo, where Golden they guy. do so doing things really well, but in really small portions. Like you, it's not a big menu, it's not a vast menu or anything. They're just doing a few things um, really well, and uh, keeping it sort of tight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, you know, at Shibush Bar, there's like, you know, the owners are mostly the only people on there. So there's two people there and they're doing things like um, you have to order and pay at the bar. So it sort of cuts down on the number of staff they've got. Mm. So it's sort of that whole thing about having to find staff because there's still a huge staff shortage at the moment. But also being able to pivot, being able to close, being able to close and open without... Having, and this is the other thing with the smaller menus, even in a lot of other restaurants, is um, that they're using, they're having less stuff in the cool room that can go to waste if they suddenly get their doors slammed closed again. Yeah, so, right. so even mm. in regular restaurants, the, the size of the menu is starting to, to contract because it's sort of, it's, it's wasteful. Mm. You know, there's got to sort of, because they're, you know, to, to have to offer everything, they still are going to waste things. So there's also another trend in restaurants where, particular some of the more high-end ones where it's only set price or like a set menu so you know you kind of go in and you pay you know 140 dollars for a five six course menu but it's good for the owners because then they don't waste any food because they know they've got particular Mm. sort of things and they can they can accommodate um you know dietary requirements and that sort of thing but um they also know that there's they don't have to have you know what if you've, you've bought you know 17 portions of venison or something mm. and like one person orders it you know? mm. so it's kind of that that sort of covering it's sort of like it's making it restaurants are sort of having to sort of take some of the power back of that kind of the customer is always right mm. and the customer needs to get everything that they want mm. to the point of like you know restaurants are actually a privilege for customers to go to as well like you know it's kind of and you sometimes you will have to pay a little bit more and you will have to sort of realize that it's sort of like it's a business that's really hard to run and the margins yeah. are really small so things are going to have to change a little mm. bit. So. Do you reckon there'll be a greater appreciation for restaurants or is that appreciation actually counterintuitively not great because it makes it more special and less common to attend I th- one? I, think, I genuinely think that there's a greater appreciation for restaurants. I think people miss them mm. um, when we couldn't go to them. I think and it sort of made people realise how much they were, they were sort of contributing to their life and kind of to the life of the city. Because to me, I think, oh, totally. the, the, you know, it's sort of like if you see a city with a good restaurant scene, then you've got a bunch of people living in a crowded place that choose to go to another crowded place to sit amongst strangers <laughs> that they don't know and are quite happy to do it. And it's kind of like, doesn't that mean that it's a functioning society? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that you're actually really happy to be around strangers because they're probably not complete dickheads. It's <laughs> 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 Melbourne's new slogan. Yeah. Um, We're not all complete dickheads. Yeah. yeah, not complete dickheads. It's the city of Melbourne. Uh, so great to see you, Michael, and yeah. looking forward to spending uh, Wednesdays throughout the year with you. Yeah, excellent. Great Cheers. to be back. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Robin Anir is an historian and author of six books, including last year's Adrift in Melbourne, and today, Wednesday, the 2nd of March, she joins us to uh, tell us about On This Day in Previous Years. G'day, Robin. <laughs> How are you going? Excellent. Uh, what on earth have you stumbled across? Yeah, stumbled across is the uh, is the operative term. Second um, of March, eighteen sixty seven, was the last advertised match at the Melbourne Rat Pit. <laughs> <All right. laughs> forgive, my, forgive my ignorance, but what is the Melbourne Rat Pit? 
Well, what you may ask, I, I never imagined we had such a thing. So essentially it was a blood sport. It was rat baiting, same as they used to have bear baiting and other kinds of baiting of, of, uh, of defenceless animals. This was rat baiting and it was snuck in under the sort of disapproval of the people who made the laws uh, on the pretext of being uh, a, a vermin control measure. So Melbourne had lots of rats mid 19th century and rats had disease and uh, the idea was that if they had, if someone opened a rat pit as they were ready to do at the back of a hotel, the Butcher's Arms in, um, in Elizabeth Street, um, then thousands of rats each year could be, uh, could be dispensed with there and this was how it happened. So it was, it was supposed to be a way of training dogs, training terriers, mm -hmm. those sort of terriers that like to shake rats and so you would bet that your terrier could kill more rats in say five minutes than the other guy's terrier and people would attend in their hundreds of a night crowd around a glass pit it was glass so that both you could see the action and the rats couldn't easily escape a terrier would be chucked in there with up to 200 rats and and it was on and they'd shake each rat fiercely and uh, dispatch them in well 20 minutes was the going the going rate for 200 rats oh my god and they and they killed um uh, at the rat pit, the Melbourne rat pit, up to 20,000 rats each year oh, for about wow. 10 years. So it was successful so, as like an extermination kind of process? That was it, yeah. 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 So, so, you know, people turned up their, the, the better types turned up their noses at it. But on the other hand, they were really glad to be rid of those rats. Mm. And the people who caught the rats lived pretty affluent lives on the strength of catching rats. They got oh, between fourpence and sixpence per rat, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you're thinking about 20,000 rats a year, mm. um, they, were, they were kind of rolling it in. And um, and it was an incredibly popular sport. And not only that, but they used to diversify. So there was a guy, Captain Samson or someone, who arrived, and he came, he'd sailed back to Australia with a mongoose. And he said, well, look, get me some snakes. So he chucked his mongoose in the, in the rat pit uh, with a bunch of snakes, and then they had some snake-on-mongoose action instead of, you know, uh, dog-on-rat. Um, so it was... it was and the, and the guy who was in charge um, was... Um, Oh, he was, he was, they called him an eccentric and he used to stand there, he, he sort of ran the pub and trained dogs and the rest of it and he used to stand in the rat pit during the match. The rats would run all over him they'd, because they were trying to escape, they'd get in his pockets and climb through his beard and he'd just kind of, you know, brush them off. He was completely unfazed, uh, unfazed by this stuff. So you can see why they might call him eccentric. His name was George Strike. He was a, he was a former convict, and who knows what he'd done in his previous life. Was, but, was, um, was gambling oh, essential to this, Robert? Oh, gambling was essential, and this is why the classes really mingled there. So you had parliamentarians and 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 your real toffs there, as well as as well as as well as a lot of kind of street level um, action happening there. Because yeah, wagering was um, was what made this, what fueled this place. Wagering and rats, obviously. Um, <laughs> So I don't know. Look, I haven't been able to pin down what exactly happened in 1867. 1867, I think um, the sort of protection of animals thing was starting to grow a bit, and and they just kind of put the lid on it. And I think I suspect the advertising stopped and the reporting stopped, but I don't think that the ratting, as they called it, the ratting stopped. I think ratting, ratting continued um, long beyond 1867. And so I suppose if you've got a terrier, you want them to dispose of a rat and then move on to the next one without getting hung up on a rat. Yeah, 
you're exactly right. So mm. part, part of George Strike's job was actually to kind of um, remove the dead rats um, as the uh, as the terrier went through went through its prey, um, because otherwise the terrier sometimes got confused and tried to kill a rat twice. So um, if you wanted them to kill the maximum number, you got rid of the dead ones first. But there had to be a, a kind of a referee who had to examine the rat to make sure it was dead and not, as they said, just faking it. So um, you know the rats were pretty canny. Um, <laughs> And um, there were places, there were other places that had rat pits. There was one in Collingwood, uh, another one in Geelong. I think there was one in Port Melbourne for a while. And uh, Bendigo had one. And Ballarat wanted to open a rat pit. Now, this is fascinating. Ballarat wanted to open a rat pit, and the local council said no rat pit because Ballarat, which is known colloquially as the rat, had no rats. What? There were no rats in Ballarat. <laughs> it was a ratless it was a ratless town up until the eighteen eighties. <laughs> a ratless town. So they used to they used to kind of weed them out at the railway station as the freight arrived. So you know, rats loved living in sacks of whatever and crates of whatever, and and they were very efficient. The people who worked at the Ballarat railway station of kind of of, of finding them on on the premises and dispatching them before they got out into the town. And yeah, so no rat pit for Ballarat because they figured you know you would have to introduce rats to Ballarat uh, in order to have a rat pit. Um, and there was a big call, again, but this time by the Melbourne City Council, combined councils of Melbourne, to reintroduce the rat pit around about, ni- oh, actually in 1900, because we had the bubonic plague in Melbourne. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a rat pit seemed like a really good idea. So let's bring back the rat pit, um, because they were just paying people to kind of catch rats for them, and, and the government scheme was not at all successful. So they said, look, give us a rat pit and you'll have no rats. Make a sport out of it and we'll maybe... Exactly. We'll Wow. Well, someone yeah. just texted us and said, it looks like this practice still exists in New York somehow. Ah, so. there you go. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's, a, it's a real underground sport, as is, you know, cockfighting and that kind of stuff. I mean, it always is there at some level um, in, any, in any big city um, or any country. But uh, it originated, I think, in the north of England, and that was one of the last places that was legit. Right. Well, it was the... Did you mention glass? So the punters are standing yeah. above the pit. Well, sort of above and around. They're not standing. They were sitting on cushioned seats. It was, you know, it was quite swanky. Yeah, um, yeah and, and, the, and the pit, sometimes it was circular, but really rats love to get into a corner and, and the terriers can more easily catch them there. Um, so a circular pit might have been better for viewing, but not so good for, uh, for catching rats. Um, so, yeah, it was made of glass. And I, I've heard that in Paris, this sounds really weird, in Paris they actually used to have a mirrored um, rat pit, which seems just crazy because, you know, the, the terrier would be catching uh, reflected rats rather than actual rats. Uh, I don't know how, that, and it wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been great for viewing, except the rats would have gone on forever, I guess. But, um, yeah, so glass. And, and yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was quite a well-appointed uh, joint, the, uh, the, the butcher's arms rat pit. Um, yeah, done and, by and, George And you say Elizabeth Street? It was a what? Uh, what street was it on? Oh, it's in Elizabeth Street. So Elizabeth Street between Little Collins and Burke Streets on right. the west-hand side. So sort of where the, uh, I think it's the Galleria or something is now, mm. you know, some just big shopping place. But, yeah, you wouldn't be able to go and point to the building and say that was it. But, you know, big question, where did the rats go afterwards? Um, so whether there's a 
really big hole out there uh, where the <laughs> car park uh, would now be that's just chock-a-block with rats or, I don't know, Yarra. I think they either went in the Yarra or went in the Melbourne Swamp, which is like um, Docklands, which is actually the perfect place. Amazing. <laughs> Sounds like a Bogan Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on this day, 2nd of March, 1867, the uh, closure or the last ever match at the Melbourne Rat Pit. Robin and Ian, amazing. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Uh, I knew you needed to know. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Got a mate's 40th on the weekend tomorrow, so uh, and she lives in Canberra, so I'm flying to Canberra tomorrow, uh, just in and out. Uh, at I'm flying on Rex. I've never flown um, with that airline. I've flown with... I've done Qantas Link, which is similar. Oh, is like it? Like a regional, the small yeah. planes. Yeah. But I haven't done Rex. Smaller planes. What are we talking here? I mean, like, I don't know. It's not like a jet. But it's... I don't know. They have... Like 50... Anyway. Like I'm, two, I'm... Two, two seats per... Maybe oh, right. uh, yeah. Isn't the idea like, oh, there's, a, there's enough here where... Um, oh, it's, is it like... I? They're risking their life, <laughs> and so we're sharing the threat. Uh, I mean, what, what difference does it make how many how big the plane is? I think for it, me, how, it how many engines they've got. Right. Yeah. No. I think just in my mind, a smaller plane is more dangerous because <laughs> I can yeah. I'm closer to I don't know everything. If, if it's bigger, I don't know that I'm in a plane. There's more people around. You're, you're more distracted anonymous. by things. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're squashed in and there's only a couple of rows. I don't know. I feel. Mum used to say to allay my fears of not that I've ever been majorly scared of flying, but I hate the idea of small planes. Yeah. And Mum would, to I think to like make me not scared of big planes. Mum would say, "Oh, the small planes only have one engine, so if that conks out, there's nothing left." (laughs) But this one's got a few, so it's fine. It's got as if it's got backup. Motors. Do you go on a small Mum's plane? not an aeronautical an aer- <laughs> engineer at all. So yeah. <laughs> uh, the smallest plane that I went on actually was when I went skydiving. This was the tiniest, tiny plane. And, and we were squashed in. It was as though we shouldn't have been, like, no wonder we jumped out of it. Like, it was terrifying oh, wow. being inside the plane. I think I was relieved when they opened the door. Maybe, and that's, we got maybe out. that's their tactic. Yeah. What's it like <laughs> when the windows, sorry, when the doors open? Oh. It, does it, do you feel. Does, is it loud? Do you feel suction? Yeah. What do you feel? Um, really loud. And just just the wind. Yeah, I'm not mm. sure if it's like because it was tandem. So like they're holding on and you've just kind of holding on to your straps, I guess it is. Mm. Um, so yeah, your life is in the other person's hand. It's, I think that's probably one of the scariest bits is when they do open the door. Once you jump, mm. for me, I felt that was scary and exciting. But once they pull the chute, sorry, and then you're just gliding, that is like, oh, We've made it. Nice. Now I can just enjoy the and, view. And uh, when the when you jump out, is it alarming how quickly? Or I'm not sure if you get a sense of it. How quickly the plane moves on and how far behind you're left? I don't know that I even noticed the plane. I, I yeah, I, I didn't even notice it. Yeah. to be honest, it was just me going down, um, and <laughs> and the because um, they they video it mm. and like the person that's on top of you will have a camera on their wrist and they're mm. kind of videoing you and whatever else and when I put my parachute on you put a clip at the top like kind of above your chest just uh, just above where I guess your nipples would be uh, and then one on your belly 
Um, and when I was putting it on, for some reason, I thought, oh, this will fit. And I put it below my nipples. Mm-hmm. So I put one there mm-hmm. and then one on my belly. Mm-hmm. And so when we jumped out and they mm-hmm. pulled the parachute, it got really tight. And the video, I watched it. I had mates come over. I was like, I've got the DVD. Come and watch. Yes. And I watched it in front of my mates. And my boobs <laughs> just flew into my face and they were just slapping my face the entire time and everyone thought it was the funniest thing and I was so devastated I I snapped the DVD I I know now I'm devastated I'm just like it was the funniest my friends couldn't stop laughing they're like this is the funniest thing I've ever seen snapped it I, I was so embarrassed no I would be too but oh, my God. And because oh. I brought my friends over, I'm like, watch this. What and the then we're hell? watching. Like, this is the moment. I'm about to go up. Boom. <laughs> you didn't pre-watch it? Yeah. No, yeah. it just came in the mail. The and premiere. I was excited. I was just like, yeah, I know. I mean, now I look back and I'm like, maybe I should have pre-watched yeah. it. But... And so because Miranda Kerr, I notice, has been doing this thing where she'll wrap a belt around her uh, uh, electromagnetic or whatever. Mm. And, um, but it sounds like that's almost what happened to you. Like... <laughs> Like oh, like it, those things that's from the 90s that take away your belly fat. Yeah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. but they've been rejigged now. It's a part of rich people's wellness <laughs> routines. Right. Um, but so, I mean, it sounds really dangerous that instead of being secure and stable, you're now like getting wrenched. It's like now your pancreas is touching yeah. your throat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was – thankfully everything was fine. Um, it was just – Horrifying to watch for oh. me. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you was... pull the cord? Uh, and oh. then what does the person behind you do? No, I think they do it. Like, oh. I don't, you don't do anything. You don't do anything. You, you're just there. You're and baby. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they do it. And then they're just like, enjoy it. And, <laughs> and I did enjoy it. I didn't notice it happening at the time. I think mm. that's good. Imagine being self-conscious while skydiving. Like, yeah, you've not exactly. enough to worry about God. already. Horrible. How good is it? I know this is like a Seinfeld routine about hanging up your phone, but how good is it that you can snap a DVD instead of, like, deleting the file? <laughs> yeah, I know. Then you know it's caches. gone. Yeah. <laughs> Clear recycle bin. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have the same kind of no. weight. Oh. Uh, so you're worried this will happen on Rex? <laughs> <laughs> God, I hope not. No, um, no, that should be fine. Um, the, the last time I went to Canberra, I, I got a phone call actually, uh, a voicemail, and it said that uh, this person was from the Prime Minister, the Australian Prime Minister's office. This is in 2011, I think it was, so it was Julia Gillard. And they're like, uh, the Samoan Prime Minister is in town and we would like to invite you to lunch in Canberra on this date. What? And I was like... Who is this? <laughs> and they left a number to call back, and I, I didn't believe it, but I'm like, I think I'm going to take, I'll, I'll, I'll make the call. Um, so I made the call, and I was invited to this. So when I was working in Samoa, the Prime Minister was the chairman of the Samoa Cricket Association. Mm-hmm. So we had monthly meetings uh, in his office. So I was like, oh, wow. So I went to Canberra for this, uh, this lunch and there were about a 1,000 people at the lunch and we were right at the back. <laughs> so it was nowhere near him or anything. It was still really exciting. Mm. Um, but I was working as part of it, like an Aussie government-funded program as well. So there were a few other mates that were there and so we all got flown in. We were just like, how exciting that we got invited to this dinner yeah. uh, with the Prime Minister. And then, yeah, we got there and it was huge. And I think 
everyone got invited to this thing. Yeah, oh, I lost it. Exciting. Shame. Yeah, it's you know, still exciting. exciting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything that you like to do when you're in Canberra? Is like you're like, oh, I got to see blue poles again, or <laughs> is is it? It's going to be the fortieth, and then back on. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'll actually have too much time. It will literally literally be fly in, fly out kind of a thing. So I'll stay with my mate. It is my mate, right? Uh, she is married, and she came to my wedding, but her wife couldn't make it. She got a new posting uh, in the Pacific, and she, they've had a few. They lived in the Solomon Islands and whatnot and she's like oh she just got a new posting in new way so um they have to quarantine she can't be there mm. her and the kids it's like that's okay no worries um and she just didn't make a big deal of it and I knew that she'd worked in different countries and then I saw she posted on social media she her wife is a new Australian high commissioner <gasps> in new way I was like, um, she hasn't just got a posting. Yeah, yeah. that makes it sound like she's a pen pusher. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so that was exciting. Come a long way. Yeah. And meanwhile, you're still reeling from boobs in your face. Triple <laughs> <laughs> Here to talk politics on a Monday, we're joined by author and academic Ben Eltham. Morning, Ben. Good morning, guys. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. Um, it's been quite a full-on week, obviously, with all the news coming out of Ukraine. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has just pledged funds to supply weapons, where previously it was limiting supplies to non-lethal military equipment. Where is Australia at in its response to what's happening? Yeah, so Australia has joined uh, many of the Western nations in levying sanctions on Russia uh, for their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, as you just said, they've also decided to provide some they're going to give money to NATO and NATO is going to give Ukraine the weapons. Um, and we were also um, involved in, in the very sophisticated financial sanctions that the world is levying on Russia. And can you do you know much about the oligarchs and their response to the financial sanctions and how this is already hurting Russians? Yeah, it's very significant what they've announced. So they've announced... Um, uh, that Russia will be kicked out of the so-called SWIFT system. So this is the uh, international interbank messaging system. It's basically how you do international bank transfers. And uh, NATO and the Americans and the Europeans have got together and they say they're going to kick Russia out of that system. And many of the biggest Russian banks are on that system. So that's going to have a major impact, not just on uh, Russian business and Russian finance, but ordinary Russian citizens as well. And we're already seeing big queues for ATMs in Russia and a run on the ruble. So this will have very, very significant economic impacts on Russia. How do you think social media is affecting the information that we're getting out of this war as opposed to other wars in the past? You, where do you get your information and how much of it is reliable? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's difficult, obviously, because information is not reliable on social media. Uh, you have to try and go with people that you can trust. And, um, you know, obviously, I think if you're just trying to find out some general information about the conflict in Ukraine, it's probably best to stick with reputable news sources, Reuters, The New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, uh, the BBC, the ABC and SBS are here in Australia have been doing some good reporting. Those would be the sources I'd recommend. And then, if, of course, you're always able to do some deep dives and look at what, you know, security experts. And there are journalists still on the ground in Kiev. Um, there are people reporting from inside Ukraine and indeed from Moscow. So I try to build up a, a picture, if you like, from as much of the different information as I can. What do you make of the military campaign so far? It looks as though the Russians have not had the lightning success that they thought they would. So it seems as though Putin was expecting that the Ukrainian army would 
pretty much fold pretty quickly and that um, they'd be able to march into Kiev and announce a new government. That hasn't worked out like that. Uh, the Ukrainian army's put up a lot more resistance than I think most people expected. Um, and it looks like the Russian advance has run into trouble on the outskirts of Kiev. Um, it's worth saying, of course, that the Russians have invaded in all other parts of Ukraine as well, and they've made significant progress in the south of, of Ukraine. So um, it's not all... Uh, it's, I don't think you should expect that, that the Ukrainian military will will win the war. Uh, Russia still has a, a much bigger army and, and is likely to be able to bring more firepower to bear. Um, the result of that, of course, is likely to be more civilian casualties. Um, so it's a very, very significant conflict already, probably the largest conventional war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. The government of Ukraine has issued a global call for volunteers to join its armed forces. How effective do you think that will be and how messy is this going to get really messy is the answer so um, once you have people signing up to fight in foreign wars that gets messy very quickly um, we've seen that in the middle east uh, with foreign fighters moving to conflicts there um, we've also seen it in european history of course uh, with the international brigades that fought in the spanish civil war in the 1930s uh, they have to be trained they have to be equipped and they have to actually make their way to the front lines uh, that's not going to help the Ukrainians anytime soon. What might help them sooner is the arms that NATO is giving them. They're giving them a lot of surface-to-air missiles and anti-tank missiles, um, and they will be effective, particularly in the street fighting around Kiev. But the result is probably likely that Russia will bring up artillery and more missiles and start to bombard the civilian areas systematically, as they did with some of the cities in Syria. So the likelihood is street-by-street uh, street fighting, which will be devastating for civilians. And then what about Australians? When are we going to notice the financial effects of what's occurring in Ukraine, do you think? And what will that look like? Uh, the next time you fill up your car, you will likely notice it uh, because the, oil, the global oil price is going to spike. Uh, Russia supplies about 10% of the world's oil, so the world oil market's going to be dramatically affected by this. This is going to have an impact um, on inflation in general. Russia and Ukraine together supply about a quarter of the world's wheat, uh, so that will have a big flow on impact to food prices. Uh, so this is going to be really significant. There's going to be a big financial shock uh, related to the, the Russian sanctions as well because um, they're talking about confiscating the assets of the Russian central bank. That's a, that's a very, very significant financial sanction that basically means taking all of Russia's dollars and euros off them um, out of the banks that they've stored them in in Western banks. Um, so that will have a big impact on global financial markets. So there'll be a lot of financial turmoil. And I suppose with all of this going on, it, going back to what, why are we here, what, the justification from Vladimir Putin, did you look into his hour-long speech justifying the invasion and what are we to make of his reading of history and uh, the, the needs of Russia? Yeah, I, I have looked at Putin's speech and I've read some of Putin's very long uh, historical essay on why Ukraine is really just a part of Russia. Uh, this is a, this is in part, this is about long, deep-seated historical forces. Putin sees uh, the destruction of the Soviet Union or the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. He's on record as saying that. So he wants to restore... Uh, the Russian Empire, uh, 
Ukraine, of course, was historically part of the Russian Empire, uh, as well as the Soviet Union. So this is about very old school global geopolitics, power politics. He wants to essentially gobble up Ukraine and make it a puppet state for Russia. Mm. Uh, there's news this morning about... A is it, I'm wondering if there's any legitimate nuclear threat because they've talked about um, Putin sort of putting those forces on alert. Is that something that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, I think we should always pay attention when we're talking about nuclear escalation. Uh, Putin has actually done it. He has... Uh, escalated Russia's nuclear readiness. He gave an, an interview where he ordered the Russian chief of the general staff to put the nuclear forces on readiness. Uh, so it's very serious. We should take it seriously. Uh, Russia uh, is likely to be significantly damaged by these economic sanctions. Uh, the war is not going as well as Putin would have hoped. Uh, so there is some concern from you know smart people about um, how far those sanctions might push Putin and what sort of unpredictable steps he might be willing to take. Uh, in light of, I mean, so NATO was formed in 1949 and in Putin's speech he talks about the eastward expansion of NATO. Is there any point during the last half century and more where we could have stopped today? Is there a, is there a trend where you were like, uh, you know, why did we pursue or powers pursue a certain agenda when actually peace may have been in a, available in a different direction? Yeah, that I mean, that's something that the historians are going to argue about for a long time, I think. Um, clearly, the seeds of today's crisis go back a, a significant period. Um, you know, one very interesting moment was in 1991 when Ukraine gave up its nukes. So Ukraine inherited a bunch of nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union um, and then as part of a, a, an arms control treaty with the Americans and the Russians gave up those nukes um, in order to have its security protected as an independent state. Ukraine's been a sovereign nation for 31 years now. Um, so uh, the eastward expansion of NATO has clearly been a major problem for the Russians. You know, you've got uh, countries that historically have been enemies of Russia um, suddenly starting to, to recruit allies very close to the Russian border. Um, Russia's never liked that. Um, and geopolitically, you'd have to say it hasn't been great for the stability of Europe. Um, having said that, you know, could Russia have been deterred um, when, for example, they invaded Crimea in 2014? Uh, the, the West didn't do anything then, um, which appears to have emboldened Putin now. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of sort of dominoes you can point to in the run-up to any crisis, and I think this crisis is no different. Mm. And what about looking forward? What do you suppose China is looking at this situation and analysing it? Where is, is China's stance irrelevant? Is it important? What's Australia's relationship with China in the context of condemning what Russia's up to? Well, China's reaction has been very interesting. So they've refused to condemn Russia. Uh, they've also refused to condemn the invasion itself, which is unusual for China. Normally, they have a position that's very strongly that nations should not meddle in each other's internal affairs, uh, which you imagine would include invading each other. Um, rather, China sat on the sidelines and offered tacit support to Putin and to Russia. Uh, that's sent a signal. People have noticed that, that's for sure. So there's a lot of concern now about whether China will draw some lessons here about 
uh, Taiwan and whether it might be able to invade Taiwan without anyone, you know, necessarily reacting. Um, I think China's basically watching and waiting, I think, to see what will happen here. But, you know, I, I don't think we can predict. Mm. Um, and, and, and how this crisis plays out will obviously have a big impact on what happens down the track. The uh, EU has banned Russia today. Do you, have you watched Russia today much? What, what's your impression of RT? Oh, so RT is a state-sponsored propaganda network set up by the Russian state. Um, it does do some, you know, more serious uh, journalism, and um, it does tend to cover news um, from a particular angle. But um, most Western intelligence experts and media people see RT as uh, essentially, you know, a paid-up arm of the Russian security state. Um, so that that's been banned. Um, to what degree that will have an influence on the on the crisis? I don't think so. It's just one of the ramifications of this. It's a bit like some of the other stuff that's happening, like Russia being kicked out of football games and the the, the judo association saying that Putin is no longer uh, their patron. <laughs> <laughs> Getting where it hurts. <laughs> that's right. Yes, he'll be shaking in his boots. <laughs> Excellent. All right, Ben Eltham, thanks so much for checking in. Thanks, guys. Triple R. For feature creatures this week, we're joined by Triple R Luminary, host of Hit Summer Show, This Chicken Life, and all around poultry promoter Fiona Scott Norman. Great to see you, Fiona. <laughs> poultry promoter. <laughs> well, I love it. You found a niche. Oh, I know. Well, what can you do? Um, also, loving that the feature creature. Things sounds like things that eat chickens. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm going to talk chickens. <laughs> That's right. Oh, they're prey animals, you know. They get very nervous. Yes, they are pretty. They are on edge. Is that part of the appeal? The, to whom? Well, I don't know. <laughs> that, that people want to care for them, or you know, they seem vulnerable. Oh well, look. I think. All animals are pretty adorable, mm. aren't they? I mean, you know, there's not a thing that we can't get gooey about on Instagram. Yeah. Like, oh, here's a baby. You know, people are always going, oh, I found this pigeon. It's like, kill it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, foxes, kill it. No, um, not foxes. Yeah, they're bad for chickens, though. They're very bad for everything. Mm. Oh, they're absolutely, I mean, sure, like great cheekbones. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Gorgeous, like you just go, oh yeah, it's like me on the runway with my fox. But it's like they are, look, introduced apex predator. Okay. And even if you're just kind of going, ah, chickens, whatever, mm. let me tell you what they do to the native wildlife is beyond appalling. They have been fingered in the uh, extinction of 40 species. Right. I regret, I regret saying anything. I'm sorry. Right. So all you fox lovers out there. <laughs> well, the, the publication of your book, This Chicken Life, appeared to coincide almost precisely with mm. our, the increase in the interior life yes. uh, with COVID. I mean, it came out late 2019 or whatever. You're ahead of the curve in many things. And yeah, I predicted too. COVID. <laughs> went, I'm going to put out a book that <laughs> makes people go, mm, I'm going to stay at home with chickens. No, there is no question that... The uh, pandemic and concomitant, ooh, big word, um, staying at home did coincide with uh, a real upswing in interest in chickens. And I was quite worried for a while because, well, one, you just couldn't get a chicken anywhere because there was panic buying of chickens. Oh, really? Yeah, people were just going, self-reliance, I've got to get eggs, um, and were just buying every chook that was available. And so all the people who are actually like in the... Um, 
you know, poultry influencing. So, yeah, anyway, we were all just going, holy crap, I hope they're okay because you can't just rush out and buy a chicken and then go, everything's going to be fine because foxes. Um, And... But it turned out that the people mostly who panic bought the chickens were people who'd been considering buying chickens. Right. So they were the ones who were ahead of the curve. Yep. And they knew what to do and mm. they were ready because they were going, now, now is the time. Mm. Um, but chickens are little mental health heroes, as it turns out, and they were a perfect companion for uh, pandemic times because they got you out of the house. Yes. And they give you something to look at. The reason they're adorable, um, to go back to your earlier I suppose point is that um, because well look there's lots of reasons I mean they're just very attractive animals um, but they're great pets and they're also social so unlike um, you know having a cat or a dog where like a dog becomes part of your pack and cats are just like whatever um, <laughs> and I say that with love I have a cat but they're really you know you're not you're quite surplus to requirements, let's be honest. <laughs> um, but with chooks, they've got their own thing going on. So if you go out in the garden and hang with them, they're just like, they'll come over and have a chat and they're like, I ain't got any food because they're, you know. <laughs> Hungry. Well, always. <laughs> and also they like variety like anyone else and they work out that you've got the good treats. So they're like going, oh, have a bit of a chat. Um, and then they just go off and do their thing. And so you just sit and watch. And because they have a hierarchy, because of the pecking order, right, which is where it came from, that phrase, they, um, it's constant drama, constant drama. So it's like who's top chalk, who's making a bid for things, who's being bullied. Um, And so every time you go out uh, and observe them or hang out with them, you're basically stepping back or stepping into like one of those South American soap operas yes, <laughs> um, that go forever and there's constant like what's going on, who's doing what to whom, mm. you know, Consuela's, you know, really upset with Maguela over there. <laughs> um, and, and you just kind of, you spend a lot of your time just going, no, no, don't be mean. Uh, uh, because, but they are because that's what they do. Mm. It looks mean, but actually it's, part of their strategy for not getting eaten what you right. you, you know a lot but mm. you host you want to know uh, co-hosting, anything. With, anything. <laughs> co-hosting uh with jessamy is there anything that you learned or that's has really stuck with you over two summers hosting this chicken live oh like hang, um mm, well jessamy is a font i mean like i interviewed her for the book so that's how i got to know her mm. and i suppose she is a the thing i love about jessamy is she's She's more pragmatic than me mm-hmm. because she, she grew up with chickens. She's part of a chicken dynasty. Like her mother is a heavyweight in the chicken world, like mm-hmm. full-on Meg Miller. <sighs> like she saved – she brought some rare species back from the brink, you know, with her dedication. She's an incredible wow. – and she got her uh, OAM, actually, for services to poultry. So, wow. Um, if you ever – anyone wants to nominate me, I'm, <laughs> you know, ready. Um <laughs> <laughs> equivalent um so i guess what i i just really like hanging with someone who's got lots of knowledge mm. because i mean like i've got i've got good general knowledge and i've got the knowledge from having chooks for about 10 years now but it's in look you could devote your life right some people have there is so there's always more to know mm. and i think the 
uh, yeah, so she's just great. She's very pragmatic. You know, she's kind of like going, oh, yeah, no, people love their chickens and she loves her chickens and blah, blah, blah. But then she'll also go, look, there's always more chickens. You know, so yes. if something goes wrong, yeah. you know, she's like, it's okay. Because you do get attached. Mm. Um, people don't think of them so much as pets mm. because they are productive uh, and they are a little critter that um, straddles while a uh, uh, farm animal and pet like their livestock and kind of like a living garden ornament for a lot of people right yeah a lot of people don't really get or they don't think about it um how uh i suppose how complex a chicken actually is Um, and there's good reasons for that um, mainly that we forget that they're domesticated and have actually in relationship with people Mm. so they're meant to be around us that's actually the deal that we made with chickens many years ago like thousands of years mm. ago so they are part of our family we're meant to have chooks in the garden like around our they scratch around they do all the good stuff mm. um and if you spend time with them they are very uh curious affectionate um they've all got individual personalities the same as any other pet right mm. um but because uh it was expedient you know they have been like shoved off into the industrial food complex um, in these big, uh, yeah, factories um, where they're, like, killed and Mm. live miserable, miserable lives and we don't think about them anymore because they're not around us. Mm. But it's it's almost like we're doing that to any other domesticated animal. Mm. So we've kind of broken the contract, Mm. I think, with chooks. and I've really felt that, like having them back in my, you know, like having them in my life and like having them in the garden. It's like it's so great. It really just makes a house feel like a home. Yeah. They fill them up. Like you come into the garden and it's like, and it feels, yes. Mm. Um, and it's very wholesome. And when people come around, they're just like, oh, my God, you've got chickens. You go, yes, they are. Would you like to meet them? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> How many chooks do you have? I have five. Wow. Yeah, I've got five little bantams because mm. they're not as hard on the garden. They don't do as much digging. Like if you haven't got a big garden, I recommend bantams. Yep. Um, and also the poop's not as overwhelming. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, there's Salty and Karen. Yep. Uh, and they're named for their personalities. They are top of the pecking order salty's top chook um, <laughs> and karen is her hench chicken mm-hmm. um she's named karen because she's always got something to <laughs> say to the manager uh and then there's uh sister bb oh wow uh, a bit of a homage yeah. um actually bb bossy boots and <laughs> three rose combs they're just like jostling for position all the time and then there's two duclays um duffy and little fatty Okay. And what about... Uh, I'm if, not body shaming. Uh, no, it's a no. good thing for chicken. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. And if someone wants to get on board now, oh. is, is it, you know, are they available? Where should you go? How do you get started? Oh, well, uh, yeah, look, you can go to a... look. I mean, look out for um, poultry shows. They'll be coming up uh, soonish, actually, because um, we've just had, you know, the growing season, as it were, so people will have excess chickens Mm -hmm. um, because they've been breeding them uh i highly recommend like looking out for the regional poultry auctions so like kyneton has a great one that's where i got um kind of like start with my second flock i got started because foxes Mm -hmm. um they um because they just have lots of different types and i think 
people do go, oh, I'll just get some eyes of browns. And um, they give me lots of eggs. And it's like, yeah, but they give you lots of eggs because their reproductive systems have been messed with. Mm. They've basically been turbocharged, so they don't live long. They all get, like, tumours and reproductive diseases. It's very sad. So uh, the egg a day comes at a cost, Mm. right, because we um, chickens are like humans, um, as in they come with all of the eggs that they're going to have in their ovaries. So if you have an egg a day, it means they run out quicker. Mm. And if you think about having your period every day, (gasps) well, how much fun (laughs) would that be, right? (laughs) Oh, joy. So, yeah, it's not much fun for chickens either. Um, So heritage breeds are great. And it's great to be able to, because they're so diverse and gorgeous and flamboyant. Like if you Google um, beautiful chickens, you are just going to have a visual feast awaiting you. Why would you not go for that? And they're available at um, poultry auctions because that's where the poultry breeders and showers um, get rid of their extra, not perfectly standard, but still incredible chicks. Chooks. Um, that's it. Yeah. And what, what about your chicken journey? Is there is there a sequel on the line, or <laughs> oh, mate, have you I said wish. everything you can? Or <laughs> well, clearly not. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, I no, I there isn't at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and I think that. The pandemic, in a way, kind of got in the way of the trajectory of the book. Like, we sold a lot. It was a very popular book, but not quite Pete Evans' level, which is sort of what you need to do to get a sequel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gold standard, Pete Evans. Yeah. I know. I'm just going, who sold a lot of books? (laughs) Uh, Celeste Barber. I don't know. Um, You know, so it's... It's still, I mean, people love it. But it's it's available? People can pick oh, it up? Oh, yeah, you can pick it up. It's still very much available. Can and I mention its title again? You can. <laughs> it's This Chicken Life, Stories of Chickens and the Australians Who Love Them. Yeah, it's the emotional component of chickens. Um, <laughs> if you uh, order it from the Chestnut Tree, which is my local bookshop in the West, yeah. they're already signed. Ooh, Beautiful. Oh, oh, my God. Mm. What a gift. Yeah. Um, Fiona Scott-Norman, mm. we've just scratched the surface. No, obviously, no pun intended. Yeah. None of the puns are intended. Um, But thanks for coming in. Oh, it's been a pleasure. What fun. Triple R. My dad was going through a box of old photos and it just had a few different things in there uh, and he came across some old school reports uh, from when my two brothers and I were in high school. Uh, very different. So I'm middle child, I've got um, an older brother and a younger brother as well. Uh, my older brother, his reports were all the same, like he, teachers loved him. He was a good student, um, he was very polite to everyone, he was a good leader, he was good at sport, rah, rah, rah. Teachers just bloody loved him. Mm. He ended up being school captain. Good for him, whatever. Um, not better. Not at all. No. I don't care. He's not in the country anymore, so I am now <laughs> child number one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so he's always had great reports and mum and dad never stressed too much about his. Mine were always the same as well. Mine was just, um, you know, Bobby could uh, could do a lot better if she wasn't so distracted. You know, she has the potential. She's just distracting others and can't concentrate and whatever else. Uh, but sport and drama, PE and drama, my two faves. Mm. And completely different subjects as well. Like the teachers were obviously completely different as well. Um, but, yeah, some of the some of my mates in drama class, we did drama outside of school as well. God, we had fun. And, look, we knew that we were drama geeks and we just embraced it and loved it. Um, 
And then, yeah, yeah, PE and sport, I love that as well. So whenever we'd have um, parent-teacher interviews, I mean, you'd always organise it with your top subjects. So oh, I yeah. Would, oh, I, yes. As, a, as an English teacher, you, yeah. yeah, you always – or as any teacher, you always know, like, none of the bad ones – None of the bad ones book an interview in. Yeah. I unfortunately... <laughs> Sorry, the kids are in charge of which teachers? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I think sometimes parents just want positive affirmations oh. as well. Ah, right. yeah. You know, and and so I remember also, I don't know why I said English. I just meant that when you're an English teacher, everyone yeah. sees you. But oh, as a French right. teacher, yeah, yeah. you get less appointments. And I remember sitting there on Parent Teacher Interview Night and seeing all the like the naughty kids yeah. um, walk past and be like, you don't want to, you want to, <laughs> should I meet your parents? They're like, no, no, no. <laughs> I had a teacher that was my drama teacher, but she was also my science teacher. And I booked her in for drama. And then she was, she oh. said all the wonderful things and she said, well, now that I've got you, mm. uh, I'm like, our time's up. Uh, we've got <laughs> oh. to chat to my PE teacher now. <laughs> She's like, no, um, now. It's a little bit distracted in science and, yeah, and then spoke about that as well. Um, my younger brother, though, he was <laughs> on the other scale. So when my dad got the report cards, it was like, Pete has missed more than 50% of classes and therefore has not passed. <laughs> Dad's like, where the bloody hell have you been? Because he caught the bus every day. He just didn't enjoy school as much as well. So we've gone from school so captain. didn't rock up for 50%? Uh, yeah, he, he kind of wagged a lot of... Went to the toilet for 45 minutes. Yeah, you know, I think I sp- had spoken about this, but he did, um, he climbed on the roof of our house. We lived in the country mm. um, and he would stay on the roof of the house for an entire day. Oh, and, and I think he was at school. Yeah. So he'd walk out, go on the house, <laughs> smoke, and just hang out and then come back down. And we didn't have mobile phones and stuff then, yeah. so I don't know what he did. No one stopped. No one stepped outside and looked up. Yeah. Well, it was it was kind of we had um, it, it wasn't a flat roof or anything like that. So he was kind of in the middle, and we'd had renovations and extensions. Oh so it was kind gosh. of like. But how boring was, for him! Totally. Yeah. Well, one day I was eating corn, and they thought the rains were in. <laughs> busted. Now he's a multi-millionaire. <laughs> that concept. Yeah. We yeah he works in web developing now, which is very funny. Um, hated school though. Uh, that was quite a bombshell for your dad to turn up and then realise that your child's a truant. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was an awkward car ride home, isn't it? Yeah. It's not – I don't think it's – it's not fun breaking – it's not always fun breaking bad news. Like, it depends. Sometimes the parents are testy and you think – well, they think yeah. their child is infallible and you're like, well, I've got news for you and it's kind of satisfying. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But then there – I had a parent who um, – and again, interviews are all over, you know, Google Mail oh, or whatever yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so you lose that energy. Mm. But I had a um a parent who was she was so she was so nice. Like she it was she was there with her daughter online and she was just kind of instantly quite um friendly and funny and we had this good little preamble chat and I was like mm. so um <laughs> oh, oh, no. Your daughter basically like your daughter is quite like she, her daughter was just had a real attitude problem. Yeah. And I just had to frame it as like, I hate to do this, blah, blah, blah. And mm. then it just, it was really hard because then she was, she was like embarrassed and. Yeah. It's not, it's not fun. You like having the good kids. It's easy. Your child's great. They go, I know you go cool. Have a good night. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think you'll be if, with parenting? I just, what is Gabe? the point of a, a positive affirmation? Isn't the whole point to yeah. get feedback and improve in your life? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it is. And yeah. It's, it is funny. Sometimes you think, why are you here? Like. Mm. Your, your child's getting A pluses all the time, or you know, yeah. But maybe it's because they like to, they have no idea how it's going. I think a lot of them also just like to sticky beaks, especially when you've been a new, if you're new, the parents just want to, you know, check you out. Basically. Oh, also, yeah, totally. Yeah. Isn't it part of the weirdness that people have different personalities, especially growing up, depending on what audience 
they're in front of, like they're different to their teachers, oh, oh, yeah. their parents, their friends, and then suddenly the worlds are colliding for 10 <laughs> minutes. It's yeah. like, oh, my God, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm distracting. Shut up! <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, over, over Google Meet, that's miserable. It, it, yeah, it's a lot more convenient. I guess, you know, parents don't have to leave work and, you know, drive across to the school or whatever, and they're only, the interviews only go for five minutes. So did, I your, did any of your parent-teacher interviews when you're a student, did your parent dress up or just like, oh, or, you know, they left in tracky dacks? or did, no, do parents I never go in tracky dacks. No, exactly. Yeah. But do, do they, well, they do, they, not your folks, but oh, fashion standards of... Have dropped when uh, you're online. Yeah, yeah. I didn't notice anyone looking to do disheveled, though. I think they still put in a bit of an effort. That's nice. Mm. Um, and what's your favourite teacher euphemism for school reports or... yeah. For feedback. What do you mean? Well, um, easily distracted oh, is probably oh. a euphemism. Yeah, yeah. Um, make, am I, the cap, uh, I might give away the fact that maybe I'm not good at being subtle. Oh, <laughs> like great. Like maybe your daughter has an attitude problem. <laughs> <laughs> do you understand what I mean by that? That's right. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasts, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website. 